destino para ti lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number 74 for November 16th, 2014. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. We are the team behind the upcoming documentary film, Identifying Nelson Buscando a Roberto. To learn more about the film and sign up for updates, head on over to inbarfilm.com. That's I-N-B-A-R film.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out The Advocate Experience. This is a program we've been running for a few months where you can actually help us shape the film. You get access to behind-the-scenes material, special updates every two weeks, and opportunities to provide feedback on our work. We have a great group of people already participating, and if you're at all interested, we would love for you to be a part of it. On this week's episode, John and I talk with Phil Neff and Mina Minutri about their work as part of the Unfinished Sentences Project, the work they have done putting together and analyzing the Yellow Book. They talk about how they've used freedom of information requests to obtain classified U.S. documents, which is helping them form a picture of how the Salvadoran military targeted civilians. Let's jump right in. All right. Our guests today are Phil and Mina from the Unfinished Sentences Project, and they're here to talk to us a little bit about the work they're doing and the Yellow Book, which we mentioned in a previous episode, and we'll link to that so you can have a little bit of background. But uh, thank you, too, for, for being here and talking with us. And thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So I thought a good place to start was just by giving everyone a little bit of background about the Unfinished Sentences project and the work that you're doing uh, there. Sure. Um, Unfinished Sentences is uh, one of the projects of the University of Washington Center for Human Rights. We're based out of Seattle, Washington. The Center for Human Rights has been around for about five years and has had various projects focusing on international human rights as well as um, human rights at home, focusing on the United States. And the Unfinished Sentences Project came about through um, partnerships with human rights organizations and associations of victims of civil war human rights violations in El Salvador. And it's been going under the Unfinished Census name for maybe about a year and a half, but the project itself dates back to like two and a half or three years or more. And um, we're really lucky to have strong partnerships in El Salvador with organizations like the Human Rights Institute of the Jose Simeon Canas Central American University, the Jesuit University, El Salvador, as well as Pro Busqueda, the organization that, that searches for disappeared children, the Committee of Former Political Prisoners of El Salvador, and particularly uh, with the Historical Memory Committee of the Community of Arcatao, Chalatenango. Those are just a few of the partnerships that, that we work with. I'd like to ask how, how Unfinished Sentences got started, and also how both of you came to it. I started interning um, as a researcher for the Center for Human Rights when I was an undergrad, and now I'm a second-year law student at the University of Washington. So I was actually working on a different 
project regarding corporate accountability in Guatemala. And then the yellow book was given to Angelina and that was a pretty overwhelming situation. And so I started doing some research on that as well. So I started researching the, it's a digital uh, declassified document collection that the National Security Archive in Washington, D.C. created. So we started combing through it, looking for, you know, the U.S. mentioning any names that were also mentioned in the yellow book. And that just kind of became this really, really huge project for me. Um, and then I started actually interning for the National Security Archive in D.C. after I graduated from um, undergrad and then decided to apply to law school. And now my duties have changed a bit. Now we're operating our own Freedom of Information Act department. And so we have written probably close to 200 Freedom of Information Act requests to various government departments, and we actually just started receiving a lot of documents, so we're getting really excited about that. And yeah, so I would say for me, my platform is just freedom of information. I think that the public, both here and in Central America, have the right to know about what was happening during that time period, and that's not really a political issue. Freedom of, of information touches and concerns everyone. I, I think that's a great point. It's something that John and I have talked about before, when we've thought about how can we as Americans help the situation in Central America. In other words, we may not have, uh, you know, we may not be involved with the, pol the political situation in El Salvador and there's sort of a limited amount of things that we can do there, but there are uh, things that we can do at home that could help people in El Salvador. So I think your freedom of information point is is uh, very good. Yeah, and I just want to emphasize that, I mean, anyone can write these requests. You don't have to be an attorney or a law student. I mean, really, anyone can write them. So I hope that people will feel empowered to ask their government for information. Mina, were you um, interested in El Salvador before your internship, or did your internship cause you cause your interest? Um, I think I was interested in Central America in general because that's Angelina, um, Professor Godoy's area of expertise, and she's a pretty phenomenal lecturer and academic. I really didn't have much knowledge about El Salvador until until doing this research project, and actually I, I kind of felt a little guilty that I didn't know about what happened during that time period. So my, my family is from Iran, and so I always equated that time period with like the Iranian Revolution, and I never really thought about like what else was happening in other parts of the world. And so it was a really, really eye-opening experience for me, and I felt a lot of responsibility to contribute towards it. I think Mina's really uh, right to point to the sort of central role of Professor Angelina Snodgrass Godoy in this project. Um, she couldn't be here today, but she's the director. Uh, the founding director of the Center for Human Rights at the University of Washington. And it's really her fault that I'm involved in, in all this stuff also. I got involved specifically in human rights issues related to Central America through a study abroad course that she led to Guatemala in 2005. And that led me to a whole, like, like Mina, it kind of opened my perspective to particularly the role of the United States in the violence and inequality and instability in Central America and the responsibility it takes on both as a U.S. citizen but also having 
heard firsthand from survivors of human rights violations of terrible atrocities. You know, once you've heard that, you take on a certain responsibility to try to, 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 to give something uh, in, in return. And I think what we're trying to do with the Unfinished Sentences Project is specifically utilize some of the resources that are available to a university like the UW, including libraries that have access to, to tons of archival information, the ability to spend time writing Freedom of Information Act requests, and then follow up with analysis and, and returning those to people in, in El Salvador who to whom they're relevant. And really the, the goal of the project is to support human rights organizations in El Salvador with, with their needs around both research and communication and advocacy with populations in the United States. I mean, I, I think it's... My wife actually found your, your page a while back and already, you know, you've done some important work that regarding the Yellow Book that was national, mm -hmm. international news, really. Um, I mean, I know you didn't discover it, but you did a great service by putting it in an Excel spreadsheet, putting it online, making it accessible to people, and uh, I, I find it inspirational. Thanks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a big obstacle that we've had and that, and that I think we're doing a, a nice job overcoming <laughs> is, you know, to just try to, to not just do all this research, but to find a way to make it accessible and to also communicate this information in a, in a digestible man manner, you know what I mean? Like, not everyone's going to have time to read everything that we've done. And so communication, we have, so we have a legal team, and then we also have our historical memory team, and then we also have our communications team as well. And so that's been, you know, really great for all of us to still learn how to communicate and get the public excited and, and just even, like, the aesthetics of our website, just all of those things. It's just, it's been a really great kind of cross-pollination of a lot of areas um, at the university, so. And is it, is it a, is it undergraduates? Is it graduate students? Is it a combination with the professors? I mean, how, how does the, how does the unfinished sentences yeah. work? So Professor Godoy, um, who Phil mentioned, she's the director of the center, and all of us at one point have either been students in our class or teaching assistants in our class. And so at this point, so there's kind of one, there's one head for each of these departments, so the legal team, communications, and then historical memory, and all three of us, and then Phil does all the admin stuff as well, and is kind of actually the, the link for all of us. He's amazing. Glues um, it together. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so all of us are all graduate students, but I started working for Angelina as an undergrad. So at this point, it's just grad students that are, you know, the constant staff, but then we also have undergrad interns who are, I mean, very, very instrumental and have done some amazing, amazing research. And a lot of it has been completely volunteer or, or folks doing it because it uh, matches some of their personal or academic interests. Um, there are also a couple folks involved with the project who have fellowships through the Center for Human Rights and so um, are using their time through those fellowships on, on this project. But a lot of it is personal volunteering. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you have a historical memory I don't know if it's department or, or part of this I organization. Run it. Oh, run it. <laughs> yeah. Our one right now. 
Well, it's it's interesting because it's something John and I have have talked about, where the phrase historical memory is prevalent in El Salvador, but not really in uh, the U.S. or in you know in our language. So, you know, I, I think John has has said this before that it's it's a phrase that he likes because it describes the the situation in El Salvador and how we in the U.S don't really have any historical memory about what happened there. When we visited in 2011 and went to the Day of the Disappeared Children when uh, Mauricio Funes acknowledged them, and I, I had never heard the term before. I mean, I just, I don't know, it wasn't something I was familiar with, and yet it was, it was his, the focus on historical memory was constant, and, and people using the phrase and the language. Uh, we, we've talked about it a lot, and, and uh, clearly it's something you're conscious of, but it, as an American, like, I just, it felt weird to hear in the beginning, you know? It's a term that's kind of hard to translate. Mm -hmm. But one of the ways that I've been able to understand it is, is through um, a historical memory project that I learned about in, in Guatemala that published a report of survivors' understanding of the war and, and genocide in Guatemala. And the, the, the report that they published opened with a quote from a survivor who said, this is a history that I understand because it reflects how I lived it. And that's what we are trying to honor through the historical memory project with un Unfinished Sentences is, is, is a sense of history that not as a you know, grand narrative constructed by academics, but history as it's lived by the participants, by the people who who continue to be affected by those memories and by that history. And so that's the, the project that we're carrying out in, in that area that we hope to be able to make public next year is a digital archive of oral histories of wow. about 50 uh, Civil War survivors from the Chalatenango region of El Salvador. And uh, that's been a massive project. We're in sort of the, we're in the post-production phase now, translating, subtitling, preparing seven hours of, um, of excerpts from many more hours of oral histories to eventually be put online. And we hope that those can be used by researchers, by educators, by students, both in, in the U.S. and El Salvador and elsewhere to um, help maintain the historical memory of, of the conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what was fascinating to me about it was, was also, I mean, the history is, it's up for grabs, you know. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot at stake and there's a lot of denial and, and, you know, you have a government that doesn't admit massacres occurred. <laughs> we have a little more political stability in this country, but I think we have just as big of a blind spot as to what happened in... Yeah. Yeah. I would be interested in hearing a little bit more about what is your take on the yellow book? Like what do you personally make of it? Sure. Personally I, I was interested in, in the yellow book because there are so few documents of this kind that exist publicly that you want to learn everything you possibly can about it. It's so broad, you know, we're talking about nearly 2,000 people who were, in one way or another, in the sights of military intelligence of the Salvadoran army, classified as delinquent terrorists, classified as, you know, political opposition members. 
there are really only a few precedents in, in the region for documents like this becoming public. Guatemala's military diary, death squad dossier being, being probably the most infamous. And it's just a incredible puzzle to try to figure out what exactly this document was used for. What you know? What are the fates of these hundreds of people who are uh, recorded there? But then also we're a you know we're a social science research institution, um, and so we have to be really rigorous about the way we we approach the research into the yellow book. So, you know, we, we try, I've tried not to speculate that, for example, this is a death list or, or, or you know, whatever else. Um, some of the ways that it was represented in, in the media after our report came out, I think, went a step beyond what, what we can say with certainty about, about the document. My understanding is there were, it's, it's a copy of, of a booklet there were lots of, right? My impression, and some of this is colored by the news reports too, but was that it was the type of thing that it was on bulletin boards in military intelligence offices. Is that something you can assert or is that my is that something I've picked up that could be an exaggeration? So the there's a note on the cover that says put this on your bulletin board so that you will know your enemies. So there's there's pretty ex- explicitly a note that that this would have been distributed to units in the field at some level um, to be used either to identify people or to um, as an aid in interrogations or um, for creating, you know, wanted posters, things like that. It's very specifically a photo album. Um, one thing that we notice about it is there's no names that don't have an associated photograph. In fact, there are some photographs without without names. So that the photograph is really a central piece of the document, and um, I think it's what what you're very right that it was that the, the main thing we can say for sure was that it was suggested to be used on bulletin boards of uh, military units you know what it really struck me and I'm gonna go a little further than you're probably comfortable with but <laughs> but the impression it had on me was that it reminded me a lot of what little I know about the Phoenix program in Vietnam where it, it, it seemed like here's the central command and control of like of how, how they're going to quote-unquote degrade the infrastructure of a guerrilla organization. And uh, that's what I sort of felt from from the reporting on it. Yeah, it's kind of counterinsurgency 101, um, and that's where we really see the role of the U.S. being central. In the report, we framed it as the fingerprints of the U.S. We can't say for sure that the U.S. was aware of or involved in the creation of this specific document, but we cite, for example, uh, um, the Warner Report, which was created by a U.S. general in 1981, specifically giving advice to the Salvadoran military about how to fight the guerrilla, and one of the suggestions was to create a registry of photos of suspected subversives that could be used at checkpoints, that could be used to create wanted ads, and so I think it's, it's very likely that documents like this were created at the advice of or, or potentially following models supplied by U.S. intelligence advisors. And that's really not, in a way it's not surprising, in a way we would expect that to happen, mm-hmm. but knowing as we do having cross-referenced the names in the Yellow Book with lists of human rights victims that some 15 
I don't have exact numbers in front of me right now, but it's 12 to 15 percent of people in the book were disappeared or match names of people who were reported disappeared, 12 to 15 percent killed, 12 to 15 percent tortured. So what is troubling is, particularly troubling from a human rights perspective, is the idea that technical and material U.S. support was being given to intelligence services and the military, which had a track record of human rights violations that the U.S. government was well aware of or should have been aware of. It also wasn't always targeted at guerrillas, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are people in, in, in the Yellow Book, many people in the Yellow Book who are marked simply as political supporters of suspect organizations, uh, you know, not all of which were armed organizations. Mm-hmm. And then even if, if they were guerrillas, you know, what they did to them certainly wasn't uh, some upstanding with U.S. values, right? At least not U.S. values that would, would identify with, yeah, more, more with the uh, dark side kind of approach. Mm-hmm. And, and this is important, I think, to understand because, I, and you guys mentioned it and I think explained it perfectly in your previous podcast, that this has ramifications for ongoing issues around intelligence gathering, human rights, counterinsurgency. We're we're interested in, in in potentially making you know learning more about some of the roots of current things like drone drone strikes. Um, you know the use of drones in, in counterinsurgency and are there historical connections we can draw between something like that and the implementation of aerial free fire zones, for example, in El Salvador, where at the urging of the U.S., the Salvadoran military would designate, you know, a whole area of of the border in Chalatenango Department, let's say, as an aerial free fire zone, and, you know, you're free to fire on anything that moves on the ground. And many of that, many of those were civilian people who, who happened to be living in, in guerrilla-controlled areas. So a historical document like, like this has a lot of resonance, I think, with issues that we're still de- dealing with in security and human rights world today. I'd also love to know if anything has come of that that work, the Yellow Book and the online, uh, the digital versions of it. You know, obviously there's been some press that we mentioned, but if you've seen any sort of ripple effects come out of the, the publication of that information. Well, one thing that that was heartening about it was indeed how much interest there was, particularly from folks in El Salvador, in terms of tens of thousands of visits to our website, a lot of interest in in the press and um, some of our partners with the um, you know the committee of former political prisoners, Hector Racinos, for example, who's, who's one of the case studies that we wrote about in the Yellow Book, had several interviews on national television and used by human rights organizations and advocates as a moment to, again, keep the historical memory of, you know, victims of torture, of political prisoners in the public dialogue, and renewed, added to ongoing calls for the release of historical documents um, that the military might be holding. So we're hopeful that that will have, you know, be a grain of sand for that struggle. And we've also heard from folks around the world saying, that's me in the photograph on page X of the Yellow Book, and here's my story. Um, or do you have information on my son who was disappeared on you know, a certain date? And that's been, you know, on the one hand, really 
fascinating and, and hopeful to hear from, from folks who have information that can corroborate, you know, the validity of the Yellow Book or that can tell us more about the whereabouts of specific individuals. Um, but also frustrating because in so many cases when someone has a question about a specific individual, more than likely they're not in the Yellow Book just because even 2,000 people is such a small cross-section of the, of the many thousands who, who suffered disappearance and other violations. So, you know, to have to say to someone, we have no information about the whereabouts of your, your son is obviously heartbreaking, but we're tracking all the information we've received, all the, all the new information that's come in, and uh, we hope to maybe be able to do something with that in the future through additional research. And we also hope that this might, down the road, scare out some other documents that are hiding, that, that people have, that they've been holding on to for years, that haven't seen the light of day yet. I think that there's decent chance of that, although we don't have any, mm -hmm. we don't have any uh, strong leads at the moment. Well, you you know you stuck your beacon out there, and and it, it's a start, it's a good start, right? Right. To shift gears just a little bit, I'm wondering what it's like. A lot of what you do is is to do the freedom of information requests and uh, and get these um, unclassified documents from the U.S. government about particular events or, or things that you're interested in. I'm wondering, Mina, what it's like to dig in there and go through those documents and if there's any you can share about and, and um, I mean, I'm sure there's little needles in the haystack sometimes that you're looking for. I wonder if you found any and what, what that all is like. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, just to give you kind of an idea of how long of a process this really is, um, like, I wrote the first round of Freedom of Information Act requests in summer 2012, and I think we received our first batch the following summer. So just to kind of give you an idea, there's, it's, it takes, like, about a year to get documents. So, so it's a big investment um, of time and resources, and, and actually that first round, it was good. Like, we got some documents, but it kind of just corroborated stuff that we already knew, and, and I wouldn't say that that I can like share share with you a really great smoking gun document, and I, I feel like I would have to show you a lot of different documents and how together I think that they're a smoking gun. But um, one that was really ex a batch of documents that we received recently were really exciting regarding a massacre that happened in March, um, about mid March in 1981, called the Rio Limpa massacre. And we knew from people that were, lived in the area that the massacre occurred, but the only declassified documents that we had essentially were raising um, the report and then refuting it. Like, oh, we heard that that massacre occurred, but no, we talked to people on the ground and it, it didn't occur. These would be a communications from the U.S. Embassy to the State Department. Right, sorry. And this, this sorry. is the, the Lempa River massacre? Right, yeah, in yeah. March 1981. And so that one was really a damning um, example because, you know, the citizens were actually fired on by helicopter gunmen and there was speculation that U.S. military personnel were in the helicopter and that was just based on, like, their physical appearance, so we're not totally sure about that, but it was just this really jarring example of violence and, and we felt, you know, this responsibility to have some sort of documentation evidencing that it actually occurred. So I wrote a request last year, and I think about, I mean, less than a month ago, maybe two to three weeks ago, we received six different documents that together, like, say that it happened. 
I think that the reason why we were able to receive the documents is that the documents actually came from the U.S. Embassy in Honduras. The military forces in Honduras were being accused of having participated, and they were saying, like, oh, no, 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 we didn't participate in it, but, like, the Salvadorans did, and, like, we received a lot of the refugees. It, it was unintentional, but it was a creative way to find the information, but through a different U.S. Embassy. So it's almost like looking at the negative space of something. <laughs> right, right, right. And so we're, and we're trying to find clever ways, like, okay, if the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, isn't going to give that information, did they maybe give it to the Department of State, and we can FOIA that? So yeah, so I think that we're getting better at it, but um, but you know, it's a it's a learning process. That massacre is actually um, related to uh, Nelson's story. Yeah, that's the Nelson. You, you know, that's the one that. Uh, is mentioned as several of the other women who were in the safe houses with his, your mother were um, involved in their families were caught in that massacre. So that was how they came to be with Nelson's mother. Wow. Wow. It's incredible. So my, my final question here is when the Yellow Book came out, I, I saw a post that was on unfinished sentences. Were you sort of asking for help about analyzing the yellow book? You know, it was a post saying these are, you know, and we'll link to the post, but it was saying uh, what do the columns on the yellow book mean? Does anyone have any ideas or insights? And yeah. so my question is really what, what can we be doing to help? Like besides, you know, trying to dig through the, um, the yellow book and, and trying to make sense of it, how else can people be helping the work that you're doing? Always the great closing question. Um, I think certainly there are mysteries that are yet to be resolved about the Yellow Book in particular and, and um, tried to highlight a few of those on our blog as a way to bring more people in and get more interest. I think the main way we would ask people to help would be to visit our website unfinishedsentences.org and click the, the, the black plus sign on the yellow background or, or the take action tab. And uh, the action we're featuring currently was drafted by the Committee of Ex-Political Prisoners of El Salvador, urging the Attorney General's office to investigate cases of torture and illegal detention during, during the Civil War in the name of um, several former political prisoners who have current legal complaints in the justice system, some of whom are named in the Yellow Book. So we would ask folks to do that, send an email to the Attorney General of El Salvador, and um, you know we think that that's, that's important. It's a, it's a way of showing the institutions in El Salvador that there is international awareness and that folks who have put in complaints about human rights violations of the past have support around the world. Of course, follow us also on all the rel all of all the relevant social media places on Facebook and Twitter. And, um, we're trying to share information every day about things related to human rights and justice in El Salvador. Great. Well, we uh, are very appreciative to have you here and for all of the amazing work that you're doing. I, I know it. You know from this podcast, I've really gotten appreciation for all the different aspects of it, but just how long it takes. You know, this is a multi-year endeavor, and so uh, just wanted to thank you personally for all the effort that you're putting in over such a long period of time. Uh, it, it's very important work, and we'll, we will be sure to 
point people in the direction of your your website, your uh, social profiles, and probably most importantly, that action page where they can take steps to help your uh, your work. Thank you. Thank you. And likewise, thank you for your work, and, and yeah, we're looking forward to being in touch in the future. All right. Thank, thank you so much. Good to speak with you. Bye. Bye.